last night what we were doing was we were looking at the greatness of our salvation. Janie saying a while ago, you know, speaking of what God has done. The, he has done great things. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. And that's what I want to talk about. We talked about it last night, and I want to talk more about it. Looking in Jeremiah, um, we'll be in 32 tonight in Jeremiah. I just want to talk about the greatness of our salvation, what God has done, what we possess as believers, what is in us as believers. And we've talked about that last night, but it, 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 it can't be stressed enough. We do not exist on something that is shaky and ever moving on us. We are brought upon a firm sure foundation. We'll talk about that in a moment, but uh, it is the beauty of this. I mean, Paul was writing about those whose faith had been overthrown because some had said the resurrection was past already. Well, they still do. They make an event out of it instead of a person that ever abides in the soul. And so they can say it's gone or it's happened or it hasn't happened. And we hear it all. But Jesus says it very plainly. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And we always take the I am out of that and make the resurrection something totally other than who he is. And so anybody can play with that and they can twist something and make a day, a time, a frame, a linear day or whatever out of it. And people will believe it. But what does Paul, what, is the, what does the scripture say? He says their faith was overthrown. He says, but here's the truth. Nevertheless. The foundation of God stands sure. See, even in our ignorance, and we said this last night, and I'm not going to go over and repeat a lot of things, but even in our ignorance, we're all that. We're all ignorant in some way. And we'll all remain ignorant eternally. That's why God's going to have to make this salvation known eternally in our hearts. And in our ignorance, there's still something that holds us and anchors us in a reality that is greater than us. And it keeps us secure even when the chaos is in our minds and the chaos is in our own hearts and we question everything. I know I did. You know why? Because I looked at the earthen vessel and there's a lot of questions when you look there. There's a lot of condemnation that can come. When you look at the earthen vessel to try to prove or give evidence to the salvation you have. But the beauty of what we read last night, where we went last night, he was taking the whole writing of the new covenant in their hearts and then he brought it into this beautiful picture of Jeremiah buying this field for the redemptive purpose that the people would have this land that he could restore to them. And what did he do with it? It said he wrote, he inscribed, it's here in uh, chapter 32, and we'll start here. Chapter 32, verse 10. He buys the field because it was his right to do it. The scripture says the one until, this will all until the one whose right it is comes. 
That's what Shiloh means, the one to whom it all belongs. That's the, the, the word Shiloh in the Hebrew means just that, the one to whom it all belongs. And guess what Jesus said? All things are given unto me by my Father. And having said that, knowing that it's all his, his possession, he came as the true heir of God to receive what was his alone, and he bids those who are weary and heavy laden with all the labor they had done under the law, who were trying their best and still falling short, knowing that all things belong to him, he says, come to me, and I will give rest to your soul. And that's the moment we come to him. You know what we receive? Rest. Rest for a soul that is weary, heavy laden with the labors, trying to be a righteous that only he is. And God bestows to the soul as a gift, a divine gift, a righteousness that is greater than you. You know what that means? It's a righteousness you can't mess up. Because it was righteousness before you even existed. It was righteousness as God perfectly has it in his son. And there's no greater perfection than that. If Jesus is not the perfect reality, there is no perfect reality. I'm sorry. If you think you're going to do anything to up Jesus, we've got a problem. If you're greater than him, we have a real issue. If everything hinges upon how good I am, I've may day. I'm going down fast, right? That's not going to work. Most people live on that, though. They live in that torment, that cycle of trying to be what Christ has already made unto them. Amen. Trying to be holy when the Holy One abides in you. And he has given you his life that we may rejoice. As Paul would say, let him that glory, glory only in the Lord. And he says in another place, we are those who, who are of the Spirit, who worship God in the Spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. The problem is we have way too much confidence in the flesh. The problem is we try to conflate flesh and spirit and spiritual life with how good I do. And we're trying to make the earthen vessel equal to the treasure. And it'll never work. He put a treasure, he put a document, a legally binding document that proved that the redemption was accomplished. That their salvation and restoration was guaranteed. And it was all put inside of an earthen vessel. So he wrote the evidence of the purchase. That word, the evidence of the purchase. You want an evidence? You want proof? It's not found on the earthen vessel. It's found in the earthen vessel. Because he says here, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences... That which he inscribed, which again we said is the same word that he uses when it says, I will write my law in their heart. It's the same word as I subscribed the evidence of the redemption and sealed it. 
And that which was the evidence of this purpose, the full proof of the redemption, it says this. He put the evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and the evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel. That they may remain there for many days. Why did he do it? We're going to talk about that. And, and the beautiful part of it, it was, it, there were two copies of this put in there, you could say. There was a sealed copy, an original sealed copy, and then there was an open copy of the document put in an earthen vessel. What is that talking about? It's a beautiful picture of our salvation because it is just that. But again, our problem is we are way we give way too much attention to the earthen vessel and we rarely give the attention necessary to the treasure in it. We're always trying to fix the vessel, make it right, make it what it's supposed to be, what we think God wants it to be. And guess what God wants? He has put in you what he wants. He has put in you what is evidence to him that your redemption is sure, that your salvation is perfect. You will never prove that to him. Ever. God has already proved it to himself. It is already open to the eyes of God, and that's what this open document's all about. But let's look at it. The other aspect of this. Let me read a verse before we get to that. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this is when he speaks of the, the first covenant, the second covenant, the one that is excellent or one that has glory, and the one who is surpassing in glory so much so that the first has no glory at all. And in the context of this, before he gets to all that, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. You think he's saying that pretty plainly, right? It's the same thing. Of God, not of us. We are not, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Same new covenant we talked about. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? There's the comparison between the two. For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, what a glorious ministry, but it still condemned men. Why? Because it could not change the internal condition of men. It was a testimony of perfection. Men would try to be perfect under it. Like Paul says in Romans 7, and all the time understanding, every time I try to do good, I'm there. Evil's present. 
Every time I try to do the good the law tells me to do, I'm running into a roadblock called me. So what's the answer? Do harder, do better, try again? No, the answer is the law of the spirit of life in Romans 8 has now come and freed me from the law of sin and death. That's the law of sin that governed from within. That's not the law of Moses. That's the law of sin and death that governed from within. That was at all times contrary to the perfection the law of Moses demanded. The law in me was contrary at all times and always is. So what had to happen? Another law had to come. The law he said we read about last night, the new covenant, written, engraved in the heart, a new life, a new heart, a new man, living in the soul, being made unto me what I can't be, giving me perfect righteousness as himself because he knew there was no hope otherwise. This is a work of mercy, man. This is, a, this is a rescue mission for the soul of men. This is the goodness of God that has been bestowed to us all. And we don't deserve it. We never did. But he still abides faithful. Why? It's not about you. Listen to these words. They will not believe. What's it matter? He will abide faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. See the picture we read last night. He tells Jeremiah, he says, now buy this field for me, or buy this field, but buy it for you. Buy it for yourself. Don't buy it for the people. Buy it for yourself, because if you buy it for you, that means it's secure for the people. That's what he's done. He did this for himself to fulfill his eternal purpose, his divine intent. And knowing that it's now his possession, you know what we can do? Rest assured that it's taken care of, that it's in good hands, that it will never cease because he abides faithful. Even when I don't, he abides Faithful. That doesn't just mean he's faithful. He abides faithful in me. That's the guarantee of this all. He's in the vessel. If the vessel had any control, any measure, if he determined anything, you or me, it's done. It's over with. We saw that with Israel. Immediately God said, okay, here's the commandments, and we could go through that a whole whole long time that the commandments weren't instructions given to men. The commandments of God was a testimony of one man. In fact, he doesn't say you shall not. He says in Hebrews, you do not commit adultery. You do not covet. Why? Because he's not talking to a bunch of people he hopes will one day fall in line and be right. He's speaking over them and clothing them with a testimony of a son whose nature is perfect. The same son that Paul says, put ye on, clothe yourself with the Lord. We are clothed upon with a perfect righteousness and that's the whole point of it all. 
And God gave those commandments and he spoke of that righteousness over them, clothing them with a testimony. And the only way he would ever deal with them and could deal with them is if he garbed them with a garment that looked like his son. That should tell us something. He had to give them an external law that made them in some way clothed with a testimony of his perfect son so that he could just deal with them. What do you think he does with us? He's given us the very life, clothed us with his son, that he may know us in that way and no other way. We are not found naked here. We are clothed with righteousness, the righteousness of another man. Okay, so... Let's go on. For there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, speaking of the first covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. And Paul will beautifully bring that right into the heart of the believer by saying, this whole thing was about from the ages and the mystery that was hidden throughout these ages of testimony is Christ in you. The glory that was hoped for. Not the hope of glory, but the glory that was always hoped for. That's who Christ is. He's not another promise for something greater. He's the greater thing that was promised. And he lives in you what Paul's saying here. And this is the glory that surpasses it. It surpasses any external law, any covenant that was previous. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more, listen to these words, this is from the English Standard Version, much more will what is permanent have glory. I love that. Much more. That first was always destined to be pushed aside and put away. But now we've come to that which is permanent. Permanent. That's what this whole covenant written in the heart and the document of redemption being put in earthen vessels. It is to tell you this is done. It's permanent. And it's never going to change. No man can take it from you. God has given it. Christ makes it so. There's a permanence being dealt with here that most of us miss. Most of us do not understand that his presence means permanence. His presence means a permanent righteousness, a permanent holiness, a permanent perfection that's never going to change, never going to move. You're not strong enough to change it. I don't care. You're not that big. If you think you can override what God has done, you're not that big. It is perfect and it is permanent. Why do we think it's not permanent? Because we look at ourselves. Look in the mirror and you say, man, you really messed up today. And we think that changed something. 
We think we're that big and that strong. We think we have enough power in ourselves to uproot a permanent, perfect salvation. You don't. And we're so busy trying to master the earthen vessel that we don't realize there's something perfect abiding in the vessel that keeps us. Am I saying we shouldn't change our ways? Oh, Lord, yes, we should. Me first. But is that what salvation is? Nope. Salvation is not men changing their ways. It's God changing the heart. It's God bringing you from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from darkness to life. That's the transaction that this is speaking of, something that's done, accomplished, and present. And in that, he bids the soul again to come and see the man who is in you. Come and see the life that is present so that you may know as you are known. Now, let's... Let's get into the aspect of this that is uh, just beautiful. Within these vessel, or this vessel, there was an open copy of the document, and there was a sealed copy of the document. We'll first talk about the sealed document. The sealed document speaks of that which is unalterable. It's sealed. It's like with the signet ring of a king. You can't open this up and just make changes as you will. It's sealed. It's permanent sealed. Only an authorized party can unseal this. And guess what? You're not authorized. Sorry to bust your bubble. Only the, remember who could open the book that was sealed? Only the lamb slain. Same thing, because he's the one that actually sealed it. <laughs> he's the one that redeems his people. So it speaks of that which is sealed, meaning it's not alterable. You cannot change it. It can't be falsified. Now you'll hear a lot of false things about what's in that sealed document. You'll hear it taught from pulpits. A lot of false information about that sealed redemption. But guess what it cannot do? It can't falsify the document. They can tell you lies about it, but the truth remains sealed in the document that's in the vessel. I was lied to many years. And I lied to a lot of people for many years. But guess what didn't change? Christ in us. You know why? Because it's permanent. And it doesn't change. Lies from men, mess ups, problems, questions, doubts, fears, doesn't change this. That's the good news. The earthen vessel doesn't make it what it is. It makes the earthen vessel the dwelling place of a treasure. Not so the earthen vessel can boast that it's the dwelling place of the treasure, but that it can submit and, and glory in the fact that it has a treasure in it. 
and knowing that the power, the excellency, the fullness, the reality is of that treasure and not of that vessel. That's why it's there. He didn't put it in golden vases. Because guess what? I'm not a golden vase. Neither are you. I'm not sparkly and diamonds crusted. I know that's hard to believe. As fancy as I look. That's not me. But the treasure in me is beyond words. Again, it's not just natural riches that we could talk about and throw out there and say, man, we've got a treasure and all this stuff. No, what is it? It's the binding document that says this is real and this is permanent. It is guaranteed. There's nothing that's going to change. It's in you. It's sealed. It's not going to be altered. It's not going to be changed. It cannot be modified. It can't be amended. That which keeps secure the condition and guarantees the redemption of the people of God is sealed. First and foremost, it is sealed, it's unchanged, and it remains in the earthen vessel unchanged and unchangeable. Now what about that open document? The accompanying document, many would call it, I guess, a copy, but that copy is not sealed, it's open. Now think of it in the context of your salvation. First, it's sealed, unalterable, and never changes. Secondly, it's wide open and in full display. You know what that means? God sees it as it truly is. It is open to the sight of God, and he knows it just like it is. It doesn't matter if you don't. God does. It's open to the sight of God. It's like Christ standing in the Holy of Holies. You know what he is? He's the securing document. He stands in the holiest of all in the sight of God for us. That secures it. God knows it. God sees it. He understands what the document says and he reveals in your soul that which is in the document. What's open to God now can be made known in your soul. See, that's what it means, and there's many verses I've got here, but this is one that really stood out to me. Because this is the distinction between the earthen vessel and how we deal with it, and the treasure in it. Listen to these words, 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, how many have had that happen? Just this afternoon. That's <laughs> right. If your heart condemn you, God is greater than your heart. And it doesn't stop there, and knoweth all things. You know what that means? Even if you are condemned in your own heart about something because you're looking at yourself and you say, my God, there's a, that's a mess. I'm a mess. If the treasure's in this vessel, God doesn't look at it and say, you're right, that's a mess. 
I was reading commentaries, and boy, it's good news to read these commentaries sometimes. Jesus. I mean, you need a sedative after you read that. I was reading these guys, and they said, you know, it says here, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. He said, that means God knows how sorry you are even more than you do. You think you think you're bad, God thinks you're really, really bad. Dear Lord, it's like these people don't know we're in a new covenant. <laughs> they don't know what, that we're even born again. They're like, you know, you think you are mad at yourself. Just wait, God's angrier. Okay, praise the Lord, you know. <laughs> what do you do with that? No, what, you, what he's saying here is regardless of your self-condemnation because you're ignorant of the treasure, God is greater than that heart that's condemning you because he knows what is real. He knows the treasure that's in the vessel and he's not looking at the vessel to validate the effectiveness of the treasure that's in it. That's what we do. I've got to be perfect on the outside to validate how perfect he is on the inside. I guess we'll be waiting on that for a while. Wow. We better be glad this is the grace of God. This is the love of God. We better be glad it's of God and not of us. Because if you're not out of strength yet to try to be as perfect as you can be, you will one day be. Luckily for me, I ran out of a lot of energy at a young age because I'm lazy. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, I'm not doing that. I can't do that. And he said, good. Now we got a starting point. You can't. I am. Now we can get together. We can do this right. Just look to me. All you got to do is have your confidence turn to me. Because that's what he says here. He goes on um, in this. Well, I'm going to have to. Oh, here it is. Verse 21. So God is greater than our, We're going to look at his knowing of us. He knows all things. That just doesn't mean he knows everything. He knows all things with regard to my soul's state of being. He knows the document that secures me. The legally binding reality of Christ in me binds my soul to that which is perfect. Amen. And he knows it. He sees it clearly in the face of his son. And you know what his pleasure is? To show that son to me. He's, he's pleased to make that son who certifies the whole thing, validates the efficacy of it all, he's wanting to reveal that son in me. He's already there. He's already perfect. My soul's already secure and in rest. He's wanting me to see that rest so I can actually enjoy it. Instead of always being at odds with the Sabbath day of God. And I can rest in the Sabbath that he's brought me to. I always go back to Brother Sparks in his book, one of his books, I can't remember which one. He's, he goes to Adam and he says, just remember this. Adam's first day on earth was a Sabbath day. You think that was for a reason? 
God created man after he had done all things already and said it is, you know, everything, everything's good. But his first day on earth as a human being was a Sabbath. He brought him into something he already said, this is it. This is good. This is my rest. And man's first day was that. That's what we've come to. God's rest. That which he looks at and says, I am fully satisfied. The question is, are you fully satisfied with it? Are you still trying to put touches on it? You're still trying to fix something. Because I'm telling you, the salvation I'm talking about doesn't need to be fixed. It just needs to be seen. It's perfect. And it keeps you in place and holds you. Let's, let's read some of these verses because this is a beautiful testimony. And if you go to Exodus, this is him seeing that document unsealed inside of the earthen vessel and seeing the redemption and the proof of that redemption unsealed and uncovered before his eyes. Here's some of the beautiful testimony of that. If you go to the high, where they're making the garments of the high priest in Exodus chapter 28. We know that the high priest was able to stand in the holiest of all. Only he was able to stand there. Hebrews would call it heaven itself, which should give you a beautiful picture of heaven. It's actually the picture of heaven in Revelation. It's the holiest of all with one lamb sitting on a throne. That's the holiest of all. That's what's in the testimony. Saying, I make all things new. But when they're making the priest's garments that would go in to the holiest of all, the garments of beauty and glory, this is what's said. When he's making the mitre that goes upon his head, the forehead, it says, Thou shalt, let me, let me go to verse um, 36. And this is again Exodus 28. Thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it like the engravings of a signet, and it shall say holiness unto the Lord. Now I always thought that was real important because it doesn't just say on the head of that priest, holy unto the Lord. Because if it said holy unto the Lord, it could be one of many. But it says holiness. You know what that is? That's the noun. That means that's the only one. Upon his head is holiness. Why? Because he stands there before God as his holiness. It's all totally embodied in him. And then he goes on. Thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be, and it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall be always upon his forehead. Notice, it's always on his forehead. Why? So that they, listen to the singular plural here, it's on his forehead so that all of them can be accepted before me. See, that tells you what knowing God knows. 
He didn't look at all of them and say, I want you to make a mitre for all these hundreds of thousands of millions of people. Because I'm going to look at all of them and I want to see it upon their head. When I see everybody has one, I know they're all holy. No, that's not what he said. I'm going to accept all of them if they have their mitre on. Nope, that's not what he said. Let the mitre that says holiness to God rest upon one man's head. And if it's resting on his head, they will all be accepted of me. See, that lets you know the knowing of God. That lets you know what God knows to be so. Because he's not gazing upon you and seeing if you're, you know, naughty or nice like Santa Claus. He's looking at a perfect son. And that son, if that son's in you, if he sees openly displayed in your soul that that son abides there, you are accepted in the beloved. What did you do? Nothing. You received him. <laughs> you believed. You submitted to a righteousness not of yourself. That's what you did. And guess what? That's sufficient. Not to say we're sufficient in any way. Or anything out from us is anything. But our God is our sufficiency. See that's the boast of the church. That's the boast of the believer. Not I, but Christ lives in me. Remember Paul would tell them, after you have known God, and then he backs up and he says, rather are known of God. Why does he say that? Because he wants the foundation not to be their knowing of God. He wants them to know the foundation of their soul. The thing that secures them is the fact that they are known of God. You see that? Because God sees what's here, even when you don't. God wants to show you exactly what he beholds. He wants you to see the same face that he looks at and says, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. He wants you to see the same son he looks at and in the face of that son finds his satisfaction. You know why? Because he wants you to stop looking at yours to find that. He wants you to finally stop worrying that you don't measure up. He's going to tell you right flat you don't. That's why the cross had to come into view. <laughs> I am crucified. It wasn't something that he was mending men and making them better. He crucified men. He put away man. And he raised up a man that is perfect. And the souls of those who would hear the voice and hear the voice as of a trumpet would live. And only live through him. This is what God knows to be true. And I'm telling you, that's the only thing that is true. What God knows to be true. I don't care what we believe. What we believe doesn't matter. What God knows to be true matters. That's what must be revealed. We talked about it the whole time. The necessity of God revealing His Son. What does that mean? That means this. God reveals the validating evidence. He reveals the thing that is the proof of the redemption in your soul. So you will see what He already sees. That's what Paul says about we shall know. 
even as we are known. Where are we known? We're known in the beloved. We're known in Christ. We're known in that which is perfect. And what the revealing of Christ does is brings us to know what God already knows of us. So that we can see perfection in the face of a beloved son and not us. And we can rest there. Now, we'll go a little further. <coughs> I'm going to go a little further in chapter thir- uh, t- 32 here. <coughs> and we'll go to verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them again into the place. I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. You see that? I will cause them to dwell safely. That's salvation. It's a place of safety. Today, everybody talks about safe places, right? I want to get to my safe place, right? You're, you're screaming, you're, you're talking in a way I don't want you to talk. Give me our safe place. You know a real safe place? In Christ. That's the only safe place there is. I'm t- That's the only place that everything is safe and secure. Christ. You're saying I won't have trouble? No, I'm saying in the midst of that trouble, you've got him. In the midst of that, there's an anchor that holds you in place. That you can rejoice in the good and the bad. And you can say as Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the reference point of that is I can be abased and I can abound. I can have nothing or I can have everything. I can struggle or I can have success. I can be beaten and left for dead or I can be in the palace of a king. It doesn't matter. I can do it all because he abides in me. We're not going to always have the best of times, but we have the best of lives dwelling in us. Something that keeps us. When everything it seems like it doesn't. When there's nothing else safe, he is. There's the safe place. And I will give them one heart. Here's that safe place. Here's his bringing them in. Here's him giving them the place that he was always intending to give them. I will give them one heart. That doesn't sound like salvation, does it? A new heart, a new spirit. I'll give them one heart, one way, and they shall fear me forever for the, for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good. Do you hear these words? He's not going to turn away from them. He's not going to put them aside. He's going to do them good. And here, I'm, I'm trying to, I don't have much time left, but. But I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. Chapter 33, verse 6. Behold, I will bring health and cure. And I will cure them and will reveal unto them 
hear that? I will cure them and reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. This is salvation. We're not having to wait on this. This is not for Jews coming into a land one day. This is our salvation. But look how he brings all of this to this beautiful statement because he keeps on in verse 7 and 8. I will cause the captivity of Judah, the captivity of Israel to return, will build them as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. Whereby they have sinned against me, I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. You hear what they're hearing? Do you hear the whole proclamation? They will know these are my people. They will know that they, they will fear me. Why? Because of the good that I have done to them. That's what we're talking about. The goodness of God that has been bestowed to us. Christ in you is God's goodness. And it doesn't get better. Because there's nothing else. It is all and in all. Our salvation is way beyond anything you can ask or think. You can't even fathom. That's why God has to reveal this salvation. And that's why that revealing will be for eternity. It will be growing. We'll be growing in the understanding of that great salvation forever. We were talking about it when we were eating out there. You know, the universe, the natural universe, they say, is ever-expanding. We'll never come to the end of the universe because God spoke it into existence and it just keeps on going. If a natural universe that keeps expanding will never find the end of it, what of an eternal God? There is no end to this. I'm glad. You can't figure all this out. You don't get a diploma and say, I know it. I've got it. No, it has me. I don't have it. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have a good grasp on it, but it has a good grasp on me. And that's where I rejoice. If I don't figure out another thing, if God doesn't show me another thing, he's given me everything. <laughs> and that's enough. I used to think, man, if I don't know this, I don't have one thing. And God said, no, 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 no. You have everything. I just want you to know what you have. Don't feel like you're lacking because you're lacking in some understanding. We all are. I don't care who tells you they know it all, they don't. I don't care who tells you they're up here and you're down here. They're not. There's none of that in Christ. As we talked about yesterday, the wage that he promised them in the vineyard was the same. He doesn't have another one. You don't get a raise and somebody gets demoted. That's not how this works. I've tried to get people demoted for years. And I think Walt was the first one. <laughs> But he's still around. 
So we know there's a God. We know the mercy of God is real. But this, I mean, this is, it is God do, it's God's doing. It is great because it is his doing, not ours. Oh, so. Then he goes on in verse 11 of 33. He says, the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good and his mercy endureth forever. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first, saith the Lord. If you see, this is what's going to happen when this new covenant is written in the heart. You know what that means? This is what takes place when you are born of the Spirit. All of this. All of this we've pushed off into the far distant future. This is salvation. We'll read that in just a moment. But one of the things is this. There'll be the voice of the bride, the voice of the bridegroom. You remember John the Baptist comes and talks about the voice of the bridegroom. He called himself the friend of the bridegroom. And this is in the context of him saying he must increase because they came to him and say, man, this Jesus ministry, he's taking all your people. They're going to him and being baptized of him. They're following this guy and they're leaving you. And he said, thank God. It's working. What was supposed to happen has finally happened. He must increase. I must decrease. Why? Because he was the representative of the law and the prophets. And they were meant to go away. And Christ was coming as their amen. Their fulfillment. The purpose they existed. And he said, it is the joy of the friend of the bridegroom to hear the voice of the bridegroom. Because all he's meant to do is facilitate the relationship. That's all John the Baptist, that's all the law and the prophets, that's all the testimony was meant to do. It was to facilitate a relationship. It was to bring them unto Christ. Remember, that's what the schoolmaster was all about. And when he could come, the bridegroom had come, he finally came, and he could take the hand of his bride, and the bride, the friend of the bride says, I'm done. My job's done. And we take those verses, he must increase, or he must increase, I must decrease, and we apply it to us. What a foolish game that is. You know, that's a game, that's a game men can get into and manipulate you till you drop dead. I'm telling you the truth. Because they're the one that dictates what it means for you to decrease. They're going to be the ones who dictates what it means and how decreased you're supposed to get. That's not what it is at all. It's not about a bunch of people trying to decrease while he increases. And then we have the conversation. How dead are you? Are you dead, dead? Or are you dead, dead, dead? Are you really dead or are you kind of dead? No, I'm dead. He lives. That's pretty simple. John was always, John was talking about his decrease as the testimony and the increase of the fulfillment of that testimony. And in this new covenant, the voice of the bridegroom is there. Calling his bride, come up here. 
Come unto me. Come and see me. Come and know me. That's the whole thing, right? The lamb's wife comes. That's the whole revelation. They, it's, it's a marriage now. It's, it's the true marriage supper of the lamb. That's what salvation is. Or you can partake of him. Wish we had more time and then I don't. Because I got a long drive tonight. <laughs> Emily is really just... No, I'm just kidding. But listen to these. I'm going to stop here in these next few verses. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. And this is what I'm talking about. This salvation, the new covenant being written in our hearts, is God's promises fulfilled. All of them. All of them. All the promises he made, he's fulfilled in Christ. And my salvation is the fulfillment of those promises are now in me. Listen to these words. The days come, saith the Lord, I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And in those days, at that time, will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Do you think that's happened? You think that's what the cross was? You think that was the whole division between the first and the second? The branch comes and brings righteousness. In those days shall Judah be saved. And Jerusalem, wherewith she shall be, I'm sorry, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name. Listen, this is the name. Wherewith she shall be called. Speaking of his people. Here's their name. The Lord. Our righteousness. That's a weird name for people. They shall be named. The Lord our righteousness. Why? Because they have his name now. They're named by him. They are known by him. God knows them in no other way. And then we continue with the fulfillment of the promises. Verse 17, For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. You know what that means? In the new covenant we have a king that will never get off the throne. We have an eternal king, a sovereign ruler that will forever reign his domain. That's salvation. Where sin did reign, now grace reigns. That's the king. But not only the king, neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man or be devoid of a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to kindle meat offerings, and to do sacrifice continually. Why? Because we have a high priest. We have. and I mean, Hebrews will say it very clearly. This is the sum of everything I've said to you. We have such a priest. A high priest. Who has passed into the heavens. This is not something yet to be. This is the new covenant written in your heart. This is what comes to us when Christ comes to abide in the soul. It is God's promises, yes and amen in 
us. Because he who is the amen of all the promises now abides there. He is our life. He is our salvation. And that is the reality. Again, that evidence, the proof of that, the thing that makes that real is dwelling in your earthen vessel right this moment. The only thing I could say is reveal in me that perfect son. Show me that great salvation. Let me see what is open to your sight. Let me see what is never going to change and cannot be altered. I can't alter it. No man can alter it. No man can change it. It is eternal. Let me know my salvation. Show me, Jesus. That's the only prayer we can have. That's the only prayer that's effectual. Sure not, help me be better. <laughs> it's helped me know who he is in me. And in that, we know, even as we are known, we see reality in the face of the person of reality. And we stop trying to settle for reality in our face. Because it'll never be found there. Ever. So, we'll stop there, guys. Thank you so much.